week about the collapse of the South Champlain Tower in Surfside, Florida. Are you all familiar with this? It was a 13-story condo unit, 135 units. 25 people have died thus far. 121 others are missing, and no survivors have been found. How did this happen? What went wrong? They think maybe there were cracks in the foundation, but it could take a couple of years to study the wreckage and find out for sure. Sinesia Kohler is a Miami-based structural engineer. I was reading an article in which he was quoted, and he said this, the key element to this investigation lies in the rubble. This tragedy is a vivid reminder of how fragile life can be and how catastrophe can befall us in the most mundane of circumstances. Just think about that. You buy a condo for a million dollars and while you're sleeping or answering emails in the middle of the night, the ground quite literally falls beneath your feet. Our reading from the book of Romans pretty technical, it's pretty dense, a lot of stuff going on, Um, uh, but I just want to highlight two things that I think will be instructive and hopefully helpful for us. First, Paul recounts the advent of sin when cracks emerged in the foundation of God's good creation. How did this happen? What went wrong? Well, the key, he says, lies in the rubble. The second, Paul describes how things are put back together. We have inherited a world with limitations as fixed as gravity. But there is, Paul says, one person who has the power to defy how things have come to be and truly soar. And this person's victory has become ours. So two simple, well, maybe not simple, two points, uh, devastation in Adam and deliverance in Christ. Devastation in Adam, deliverance in Christ. Point one, there is something that is very interesting that happens right off the bat in our text. Why don't you guys take it out so you can look at it? Sin entered the world through one man. Sin, it's a a singular noun, and it's the subject of a verb. It did something. It entered the world. Now, class, what do we call the attribution of human characteristics to inanimate objects? It's a rhetorical device. It's called personification. And over the next few chapters in Romans, Paul personifies sin a lot. Sin does stuff. Sin seizes opportunity. Sin tempts us. Sin reigns over us. Sin deceives us. Sin kills. And we are used to thinking, and frankly, we talk about sin as things that we do or don't. That's what we just did. You know, things done or left undone. And that is what sin is in a lot of ways. But what Paul is saying here, and this is important, is that our individual sins are never just individual sins. Rather, we are caught up in and we contribute to 
a network, a, I don't know, it's, you have to find weird analogies, a, a structure, a web that is so pervasive and so dominant that every single person's destiny is affected by it. A lot of commentators will say sin in this part of Romans is like a monarch. It's like a ruler. It's a king. And the power that sin holds over us is death. And death is the future from which no one can escape. Sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all people. Now, the explanation of when and how this happened uh, assumes basic familiarity with the first few chapters in the book of Genesis. God created Adam, and God placed Adam in the Garden of Eden. And Adam had a choice. He could live in harmony with the God who made him. He could live in harmony with Eve. He could live in harmony with himself. All he had to do was obey the commands that God gave him. And what I want to say here is that Adam had a a very real choice in the matter. Adam could have chose to stay faithful and live forever. It was possible for Adam to not sin. What happened? When I was a kid, the, um, the movie Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade was on TV a lot. Do you remember, remember towards the very end, uh, there's that old knight of the grail, and he says, you must choose, Indiana, but choose wisely. The right choice will bring you life. The wrong one will take it from you. Like Walter Donovan and the female blonde Nazi, uh, Adam chose poorly. And so have Adam's descendants, people like you and me. But there's a key difference. Because the Bible teaches, for us, for Adam's children, the deck is stacked. There is no choice. No one since Adam can choose to live outside the sovereign Siamese twin of sin and death. Those powers have dominion over us all. That is the devastation of Adam. Now you say, well, I don't know. I can choose to do things all the time. I can choose to get a haircut. I can choose to get a tattoo. I can choose to get uh, my car washed. And we do obviously have the power of choice in matters uh, what some people call beneath us. But above us, the power to choose to step outside the sovereign reign of sin and death. Well, we do not have a choice in that matter. We cannot choose to step outside that realm. Adam's disobedience was a, a contagion, a sickness unto death with, uh, you know, we've all been through COVID, uh, with an r not higher than any virus this world has ever seen. His sin spread to all humankind such that every human being who has ever come after Adam has repeated his failure. Now, I, I, uh, I mostly want to sidestep the question of the historicity of Adam. As if to say, did what is described in the book of Genesis chapter 3 happen in real time and space? 
Or is this a legend, a myth, a symbol, to sound very smart and quote a scholar named Paul Ricoeur, of a break between two regimes? Is this history or is this a myth? Very important question. Peter is going to talk about this next week. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, like I said, I kind of want to sidestep it. I think there's valid reasons, you know, for and against, I should say. But uh, one thing in favor of a historical Adam, I do want to say, this is not rel- directly relevant to the text, but I think this is important. It is very vital, isn't it, to maintain the essential unity of the human race. That we all have the same physiology and chemistry and genes. That we are all one people. Because isn't the denial of that unity the foundation of the evil that we lament that is called racism, right? Believing in lots of different races that certain individuals are worthy of more dignity or just treatment than others. No, the Bible says we are all human beings, We all share so much more than differs from us. And look, you don't have to believe in a historical Adam to believe that, but the equality of every human being in all of their dignity and in all of their depravity is foundational to the story the Bible tells about the world. Really, the main point I'm trying to make here is that we are all born into a condition of rebellion. And the Bible's name for that condition is Adam. Through the disobedience of that one man, the many were made sinners. And sin results in death, physical and spiritual death. It's difficult to gain a hearing for this way of framing the human story. By that I mean all this talk about sin and the domination of sin. Because surely, it's, you know, it's 2021. There must be more empathetic, more humane ways to describe indecency, right? You know, we, uh, uh, we suffer obsessive behavior or certain pathologies. We're, we're victims of trauma. And I believe all those things. Those are helpful diagnostic tools. But in the Christian faith, the category of sin is fundamental, And sin, I I think this is the rub, it points to a problem that we cannot solve in and of ourselves. I think that's why we don't like it. I cannot tell you how many, I'll just, I'll pick on pastors, how many pastors I know live and talk as if stress or, or hurry or busyness is their number one problem. That if only things would slow down, they would be more gentle, more kind, more present. Paul is saying, busyness is not your problem. Sin is your problem. The objective, demonstrable reality that was set in motion long ago that inevitably results in separation from God. The Bible calls that sin, and Paul says that is the human predicament. And the claim that I want to make in this first point is that if you don't understand what it means to be a descendant of Adam, to be a child of Adam, to be in his family tree, then you will not understand the routine peril of everyday life. 
Life in which buildings collapse and planes crash and people are enslaved and the planet goes to war with itself. As children of Adam, this is Fleming Rutledge, we are at the mercy of forces that we cannot control, forces that seize our lives and dislocate them violently. Now, this is an extended bridge to my second point. Paul, and his intention in this passage, is not to terrify us and convince us that the world is a cold and dark and terrible place. That is not how the gospel functions. Rather, it is as we are delivered from peril that we realize the insecurity of our situation. Let me try and, let me try and illustrate this idea that once the problem is solved, you realize how grave the problem truly was. Let me illustrate. Um, I don't remember the first time I got on an airplane. My dad traveled a lot for work, and so he would routinely take a subset of me and my three siblings on trips with him. So we traveled internationally a little bit. I was just on planes all the time when I was a kid. I, I don't remember the first time I flew, but I do remember the first time I realized how terrifying flights could be. This was, it was, I know the date, because it was the day after my wedding. It was May 14th, 2011. Meg and I were going to southwest Florida, and we flew through what must have been a tropical storm. You know, there were like black clouds and torrential rain. The plane was moving like a kite. And as we made our descent, it was like we were like flying in a blender. And I thought to myself, are we going to try and land this plane right now? Like, oh my gosh. And we did try. We got close. I mean, we got very close. I could see the grains in the tarmac. And right before we actually touched down, you could sense the rounded nose of the plane go up. And then the cabin followed. And the pilot went on the intercom and said, yeah, it's too dangerous to land. We're going to fly back through the storm, go to Tampa, sit there for a while, and then fly back when it was safe. Uh, you know, as aeronautical brushes with death go, this is probably not that big of a deal. I, I, we were probably pretty safe, objectively, but it felt to me like we were in real danger. And some screw came loose in my head, such that every time I flew afterwards, I thought to myself, we are getting into a composite metal tube with 150 other people to go 35,000 feet in the air at 500 miles an hour. That is insane. What are we doing? And look, you know, I still fly all the time, and I don't get too anxious. Sometimes I do. You can ask my wife. Um, but not all the time. Um, but for, I think forever. Whenever we touch down, I want to, like, kiss the ground. You know, like, we made it. <laughs> We've been delivered. And I think in a similar way, this, this notion of, like, elation and joy and gratitude for what we have been saved from. That is the emotional mood of this passage. It's not a tragic look at how bad things have been. It's this open-handed shout of joy for what God has brought us through. Okay, show, don't tell, I know. Okay, so second point is deliverance in Christ. Devastation in Adam, deliverance in Christ. At the end of verse 14, Paul, he says... Um, Adam is a pattern of the one to come. Who is that? Obviously, Jesus Christ. The Sunday school answer works here. And so Paul, in the rest of the passage, 15 to 21, the last three paragraphs in your bulletin, 
He makes a bunch of comparisons and contrasts between Adam and Jesus. He says Adam is like Jesus in some fundamental ways, but he's also very different than Jesus. And the history which flows from these two people are very, very different. Now, the similarities between them, you could kind of frame it. One biblical commentator says both Adam and Christ have determinative significance for humankind. It's a very fancy way of saying Adam and Christ determine a world. Those who are descendants of Adam live in a certain kind of world. And those who are born anew in Christ live in a very different kind of world. Adam's world is the world of sin and death. Christ's world is the world of new life and true freedom. So they're similar in some ways. They have determinative significance. But they're very, very different in others. And the comparisons are really where the, word, where the real juice is in the passage. Um, Paul says, first, the nature of their actions are very different. Just think back to Genesis 3. Adam trespassed. He disobeyed. And de- deviated, you might say, from the path that God showed him. And the result of that trespass was condemnation for all people. Christ, his actions are presented as a gift Jesus and his act of self-sacrifice and obedience and faithfulness to his heavenly father, it resulted not in condemnation, but in this very key technical term, justification. Peter's talked about justification already in Romans. It shows up a lot. But just to review, in Jesus Christ and because of Jesus Christ, God looks upon you as being in the right. No longer devastated, no longer powerless or ungodly, like we talked about last week. God looks upon you as being in the right. That's what the word justified means. It is just as if you never transgressed. It is just as if you are not a child of Adam. And so what that means more practically is that unlike Adam, in our sin, we don't need to hide from God. And unlike Adam, our sin does not restrict us from the presence of God. All of us who are in Jesus Christ can rest and trust that we are in the right. And it is a gift. It is, it is the gift. God graces us with this position And this identity in Christ, in complete defiance of merit. And theologians, like David Taylor, they sometimes refer to this aspect of what God does in our lives as um, forensic. You know, that's kind of a tricky word, but you know what forensic evidence is, right? You know, watch CSI. It has to do with criminal law courts. And that's where the word justification came from that Paul kind of utilized to describe what God does for us in Jesus. Because to be justified is to receive a non-guilty verdict. It's to be acquitted. It's to be pardoned. It's a clean slate. And that's great, right? If you're guilty and then you are found non-guilty, thanks be to God. That is a good thing. But look, here's the thing. If you are a career criminal, 
if you have been habituated into a life of crime, a clean slate is awesome, but the chances that you are going to stay free from crime, if you've just become so used to it, what do they call that? Recidivism? It's not likely. You know, I, I've, um, I've read and seen Les Miserables. I understand the power of that imagery, but I'm just going to tell you from very personal experience. The word of forgiveness that does not always issue into new desires. What we need is more than just this I don't want to, you know, downplay it, but we need something more than a relatively abstract pardon. We need a power, a counteracting power that will reverse the course of our life and enable something very different than we would have deserved. Justification shuts the door on our past, and thanks be to God, we never have to wonder if God looks upon us as being not in the right. That is amazing. Maybe that would be enough. But we get something more than that. We get a counteracting power. And that's hinted at. This is really the subject of Romans 6 that I think David's going to talk about next week. But we get a hint of this in our text, in verse 21, I think, when Paul says, in Christ, grace reigns. In the same way that death reigned over us and exercised this very pernicious influence. In Jesus Christ, grace reigns. God's love and kindness towards us reigns and it influences us. It beautifies us. It ennobles us. It humanizes us. It enables a very different kind of life. You can almost picture uh, sin as this unstoppable train. Remember that movie, Unstoppable? Pretty good movie. Uh, It is moving in one direction and it is we are locked passengers. You know, we are passengers and the door is locked. And it moves ever forward and it warrants more and more and more judgment and condemnation and shame and guilt. It debilitates us. It's, it's a terrible train to be on. And what God does for us in Jesus Christ is not just stop the train in its tracks. God reverses the course of the train such that we begin to move out of death and move into life, move out of guilt and into self-acceptance, move out of shame and into really meaningful fellowship, friendship. God's gift in Christ acquits us of wrongdoing, but it, it does more. It's dynamic. It's recreative. It calls into being the things that are not. It brings life out of death. So where sin once reigned, grace now reigns for those of us in Jesus Christ. And what that means, brothers and sisters, is that we are in an alternative sphere of influence. We live in a new kingdom, and we now journey through life, not as recipients of fate, and not as just victims or victimizers in this network of sin. We partake in Christ's own authority in the new world. Paul says like this, we reign in life, We reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And more than anything else, what Paul wants us to take from this text is a recognition that our Lord, the one man, Jesus Christ, has set us free. He has transferred us from the dominion of death into a world of life. He is... um, the Archimedean point upon which God turns the world. 
He is the only man born not as a child of Adam, and he is the only person in whom we have joy and peace and forgiveness and hope. The, um, I think the natural conclusion from our text, and frankly a very fitting end to my final sermon here at Church of the Cross, is simply this. The kindest, most gentlest, most joyful, most just person who ever walked this earth is also the most important person who ever walked this earth. It is that one man, Jesus Christ. We were devastated. The world was devastated in Adam. We and all creation is delivered in Jesus Christ. We are made new. So make your boast in him. Live your life in him. Cultivate familiarity with him. He will never stop working. He is undefeated. No crashing tower or planes falling from the sky can imperil what God has promised you when you are in Christ. It is all through that one man. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.